Before we get to today's show, I'd like to invite you to become a part of this show. If you have hiked the John Muir Trail, whether you section hiked it or through hiked it, or if you intend to hike it in the future, then give us a call, 818-925-0106, and please leave a voicemail telling us a little bit about your experience, a memory, a hardship, what you're looking forward to, or how it affected your life positively or even negatively. At the end of this season, I am hoping to collect these voice messages and edit them into an episode focused on the John Muir Trail. So if you would like to potentially have your voicemail appear on the show, call us up, 818-925-0106. Leave us your name, whether that is your real name or your trail name, where you are located, and give us your thoughts within three minutes about the John Muir Trail. Thank you ahead of time, and let's get to the show. Welcome to episode 91 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back. Welcome aboard. Today is the first of four episodes this season that take place in Asheville, North Carolina. I worry that a lot of the times this show is a little too focused on the West Coast, so I'm happy to say that we have at least four episodes this season that take place and represent the southeastern part of the U.S., We will be speaking with Lee Trebatich. He is the VP of Marketing at Appalachian Gear Company in North Carolina. And this is one of those episodes where we talk about a huge variety of topics. Everything from ice climbing to oil spills to medicinal plants to alpaca clothing to the outdoor industry to the JMT to education to marine biology to mountaineering to Asheville itself and even more on top of that. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to the show. I'm Lee Trebitich, and I'm VP of Marketing and Lead Athlete with Appalachian Gear Company, and we're currently live here in Asheville, North Carolina. All right, so we're going to talk a lot, I know, eventually about App Gear and all your excitement about this 100% alpaca stuff. But before we get to all that, we're going to talk about little Lee <laughs> before he grew up into nine foot tall Lee with what size shoes? What is like size 13? What are you wearing? Uh, yeah, 16, like, 17, 16, depending on the company. 17 shoes, right. <laughs> So specialty made shoes. So before we talk about when you turned into a giant, let's talk about when you were a little kid, how you grew up and how you ended up getting involved in the outdoors and then eventually ending up where you are today. I grew up in southern Mississippi along the coast of Gulf of Mexico and grew up on a pretty big uh, piece of land. So I was always involved with the outdoors, whether it's helping my father cut the grass, bush hog, take care of the garden. Me and my brother always grew up as just kids who ran around outside barefooted, uh, building forts. Anytime a storm came through, knocked down a tree, that was a great opportunity for, you know, any fort building, any, you know, stuff like that. So growing up in southern Mississippi, uh, didn't really have too much winter. Most of our Christmases and early January and Februarys were Sometimes in, in the 80s, always shorts and short sleeve shirts running around. So I always uh, sought to travel and find kind of a winter, winter wonderland. Never had any snow really when I grew up. And that's what really got me into the outdoors, traveling as I grew up, getting into college and in high school, traveling to Colorado more, getting involved with snow sports and making that a yearly routine. And it still goes on this year. I still go out to Colorado annually, even more now. That's what really grew my passion about outdoors is getting into the mountains, the Rockies and the Appalachians here, just finding out more than what there is to offer than being on the coast and 
surfing and skimboarding, you know, climbing and rivers, canoeing and all stuff like that. So that's what really got me involved with outdoors. I have a master's in botany. So throughout college, I really focused on the outdoors, bachelor's in marine biology and a master's in botany. So for about four or five years, I was an active marine biologist working on coral reefs down in the Caribbean and tagging sharks for a government company, NOAA. And so that was really fun, really active and outdoors. Then I wanted to kind of evolve and move inland more and getting more involved with the mountains and so I kind of sought out a separate degree in botany with a kind of focus on alternative medicine and that kept me outside. I, for the most part I was going around at an early age in the 20s uh, with the national parks and doing talks and plant walks and doing a lot of volunteering to get my foot in the door and it just opened up a lot of opportunities and I eventually set roots in North Carolina as we're at right now and I'm fully involved with outdoor company and kind of doing my dream job. So let's go back a little bit. You started out in marine biology or did did you start in botany or marine biology? Marine biology and then transitioned into botany. Yes. So what kind of led you to those pursuits? Well, marine biology growing up on the coast, I always had a passion in the ocean. University of Southern Mississippi is my alma mater and uh, growing up I used to always attend a lot of their summer marine camps and uh, so I always had a passion to be a marine biologist and as of many people dream of being dolphin trainers i actually wanted to be kind of like more involved with the chemistry of it marine toxicology or kind of like the non-cliche animals uh more in depth and I got involved with multiple realms of marine biology. I started off tagging sharks. I started, then I transitioned to working with coral reefs and coral bleaching down in the uh, Caribbean, specifically uh, in the country of Jamaica with the University of West Indies. And then I um, got transitioned into becoming a marine toxicologist for a year or so, working with the uh, oil spill that happened in 2010 from BP. It was a really cool transition as a marine biologist. I touched on a lot of realms what I wanted to touch on, and uh, I don't want to say I got bored, but I wanted to see what was out there more and as a marine biologist plants always fascinated me underwater and I just took that passion and moved on to land. I feel like marine biology is one of those things that when you say I was a marine biologist to the average person they have no idea in hell what you did. So why don't you explain to people a little bit what the day in the life of a marine biologist looked like? (laughs) As I said I had multiple jobs and divisions of a quote-unquote marine biologist. For instance when I worked with sharks I spent uh, two to three months on a 200-foot boat and we would set out uh, hooks on a nautical mile wait a couple hours and come back and retrieve these hooks and most likely you would have creatures from the depth uh most likely sharks or bigger fishes and this is always a friendly uh way to kind of keep inventory take inventory of species and so basically we would haul up these big sharks via cradle or hook and rodeo them try not to get slapped or uh bit which a couple scars tell otherwise and tag them maybe some of the bigger ones for radar kind of see what the migration patterns are and then release them back into the water and kind of go from there that was always intense you know i had a couple of close calls especially working with younger interns you know everybody's worried about the teeth but you also got to worry about the tail sometimes but then i got away from that and then moved into coral reef research uh, as i spent a lot of time in jamaica working north part of the country on the university of west indies and this was probably my highlight of being a marine biologist and i would just wake up on a boat and i would literally take a breath roll off into the water and that was my office for today and whether it be going down uh checking fish species you know certain coral uh species or whatever it was so uh, our office was the coral reef it was very fun because every day was a new new day new uh, species new colors new challenges new people joining the crew and it was always fun and i ended up leaving jamaica coming back working with the university of southern mississippi at the research lab in ocean springs kind of ended my career there and that's when i transitioned into botany and you mentioned the bp oil spill What was your involvement in that cleanup? Well, I was taking a class and working with a close toxicologist down there who was actually involved firsthand with the oil spill where we actually got to go out on the boats and sample the oil and bring it back to the lab and kind of, you know, figure out the degrees and all the technical specs of the oil and the chemistry and what it's going to do, especially to the micro aspect of the marine habitat. It was quite an experience, especially see 
people, locals, government officials, and everybody come together and try to make this happen and clean it up. And to my point, I thought everybody did a good job. Oil spills happen naturally. It's been happening for millions of years before humans are even on here. Of course, we just increased the fact the, the ocean can take care of itself, and we helped it. I think it's bounced back. You know, some people will disagree with me, but um, shoot, I'll go back down to the Gulf Coast and eat fresh seafood down there any day at a time. And and uh, that was my pretty much involvement with the uh, oil spill was just being in the lab and help sampling the oil on site. And you said you transitioned to botany. So what made you decide to get out of the ocean and start focusing on plants? I realized there was a lot less stuff to bitch you on land near plants <laughs> right. than the ocean. Well, as I mentioned, I've always been intrigued working with the coral reefs and underwater plant species. I've always been intrigued with botany. And uh, I just wanted to try to make that into a career or a side hobby and got involved with the school at uh, Arizona State University and uh, took a couple courses and then I decided I liked it and stuck with it for about two and a half years to achieve my master's and a focus on alternative health and basically turned out into be what I called myself, quote unquote, a bush doctor. I did alternative medicine uh, approaches to help people and I've treated anyone from four months old uh, to elderly uh, folks, uh, anything from colic to minor cancers to upset stomachs to flus to pretty much anything out there and I really found that as not as much as a career but as a side hobby and uh, I got into that really deep got into the national parks teaching botany courses what soldiers used to survive on I did the 100th year uh, civil war talk down in the gulf coast at the gulf islands national seashore and kind of reread diaries and journals from soldiers and what they survived on on these islands plant wise and I'm still going around the country doing active edible medicinal plant courses mainly for hikers and active outdoor people I do anything from level 100 classes just showing you what what's in your backyard to level 400 classes bringing it harvesting it and turn into medicine and actively using it so i consider myself a still active quote-unquote bush doctor because there are still people and clients and patients i have and i just enjoy it so much uh and that's why i still uh, have it as part of my life so you're like a little shaman you're like yeah a shaman. A shaman with uh dreadlocks down the side yeah <laughs> so somewhere along this path where you're swimming through the ocean and running around you know treating people with plants you start climbing ice and mountainsides. When does that happen and what draws you to those? Growing up in southern Mississippi, as I mentioned, never had too much of a winter. So I always, No, there's no winter, no none, snow. No. Our biggest mountains are ant piles. So like I said, I always escaped and I always set roots in Colorado, mainly Fairplay, Gunnison, Ouray. I got involved with snow sports just by putting on snowshoes and trekking. And I always admired these ice climbers when I was younger and these mountaineers scaling to these heights that as a southern Mississippi guy, I miss a hippie, um, we don't see too much. Uh, so I was always fascinated with that. And of course, what fascination draws curious and I started dabbling in it. Rigged up my first set of crampons via my big ass shoes because I couldn't find a company right away that had mountaineering shoes without ordering, you know, or paying $800. So I rigged up a pair of, I think it was Black Diamond Saber 2s, uh, kind of strapped them on an old pair of hiking boots and uh, got a good friend of mine named Jake Vavrika, who's an athlete of mine now for our company, kind of just showed me the way. And I, I dabbled into ice climbing before I got into mountaineering. And it's usually the other way for people, but I'm glad I did that first because I, I'm proud to call myself an active ice climber, seasonal ice climber. Uh, I love it to death. Mountaineering, as you said, I, I, I do a lot of that now. Rainier, Hood, training for Denali, setting up a couple trips. I want to do the seven summits, but if you ask my wife, I'm doing the six summits. That's fine with me. But uh, yeah, so get a curious boy from Mississippi traveling to Colorado, got me involved with snow sports and that's what I'm more involved today with I, I like I said actively travel for snow sports we're going to be out in Bozeman for the ISOS in December doing a lot of climbing with the team then bouncing to Ure, Colorado three days from now I'm traveling to Nepal with Backpackers Magazine to do some trekking and some climbing out there and I'm excited about that you and I grew up in kind of similar circumstances I grew up in Louisiana you grew up in Mississippi you grew up with my cousin correct <laughs> shout out to Lee Milligan one thing you and I both know is we had a lot of experience with rain and flatland and marshland, but we didn't know a damn thing about mountains or snow or ice. So by the time you head out to go ice climbing with somebody, had you had some experience out in the snow by that point? Or was it just, hey, come try this weird ass activity that you probably don't know anything about? Yeah, it was basically come try this weird ass activity. <laughs> uh, 
Like so, a, so what was your thought when you walked uh, out there? Well, I've been in snow, never been on ice <laughs> technically. And my good buddy Jake and Andrew basically kind of said, uh, strap on these crampons and kick into the ice and, you know, you'll figure out the rest. And I basically did, you know. I love ice climbing. I don't do much rock climbing because I grew up, like I said, with big feet and a lot of companies, <laughs> especially rock climbing, doesn't even make shoe sizes to this day. So I actually grew up rock climbing barefooted and I had a lot of major injuries. I like to believe I'm the one that created the toe cam. Where that's where you shove your big toe into a crack and use it as a cam. Yeah, I got out of rock climbing and I'm much safer. I feel much safer on ice. And ever since that first day where I kicked into the ice on top of it was a great feeling and, and I still get that same feel until this day when I climb. So did you transition into mixed as well or do you strictly feel better when you're on ice only? I like both. I feel comfortable on ice but mixed it is its own beast. I do love mixed climbing because it performs new challenges. You know, especially mixed climbing, you're able, you know, most of the time to keep your uh, heavy boot and crampon on and climb with the rocks with your crampon. So unless you're on big walls where you need to switch to climbing shoes, you know, that's not my game. Mixed climbing on ice, I definitely love to dabble in that, and I haven't run into too many obstacles yet. Yeah, so you eventually start moving into mountaineering. You've started developing these ice skills and probably some snow skills. Uh, would that transition into mountaineering look like? Yeah, like I said, I started ice climbing and transitioned to mountaineering, and my first climb was... An attempt on Rainier. <laughs> Funny enough, I lied my way to a God service saying I had experience. <laughs> Didn't have any at all. I was an active college basketball player, and I was like, what the hell? You know, I can play 40 minutes in a game straight. I can climb up this mountain. So I lied my way, got on, uh, got on the list to climb Rainier, went out there. 300 feet from the summit, caught an injury. I was dog tired. Had to turn around first time whoop my ass. So that was my very first attempt in mountaineering was uh, actually Mount Rainier. Yeah, so you go in thinking like, oh, I'm an athlete, I'm a basketball player, I do some ice climbing, I know what I'm doing. What did you find out about yourself when you realized, oh, this isn't what I expected, this is more involved than I than I assumed? Well, when I kept on asking how many more miles <laughs> and I wouldn't get an answer and finally until a guide looked back and said, we don't go by miles Technically, we only have about three or four miles left. And I'm thinking, oh, that's not bad. But technically, we had, you know, anywhere from seven to 9,000 gain left. And that's what really opened my eyes. As an athlete, I went in there with a bigger head thinking that uh, this is something that I, I would be able to run up. But that's when I was open to different muscles and different reactions the body have with not only just hiking compared to mountaineering, compared to basketball, compared to ice climbing. And so that's what I think actually helped create me as a better athlete was the awareness that unless you're Bo Jackson, you really can't do too many things, too many sports unless you train individually for them. Had you dealt with acclimatization at that point? Were you familiar with dealing with altitude or was that a new surprise too? I, it wasn't too much of a surprise. Um, I had some good friends that lived in Fraser, Colorado, high al altitude, Beaver Creek, Fair Place. So altitude was never a problem with me when I was out there just doing snowshoeing and hiking during the summer. You know, that's actually never been a problem. I've only called one minor case of altitude sickness and that was just messing around doing some uh, snow training on Mount Hood and actually flew in with a cold and it just kind of snowballed from there but altitude's actually never given me a problem knock on wood because usually that's uh, something that halts people from even attempting a mountain let's talk about the resume let's talk about some of the mountains you've climbed and the experiences there it's it's spread out you know growing up in the southeast doing some rock dabbling as I mentioned climbing barefooted in the state of Georgia North Carolina you know all that great outdoor climbing it gets overshadowed a lot you know there's a lot of great bouldering down in southern Georgia near Atlanta that uh, people just don't know and it's just kind of good it keeps it more secluded for us so that's kind of where my resume started barefooted rock climbing and bouldering in southern Georgia northeastern Alabama a lot of the caves around there not too much in Mississippi there ain't too many rocks or boulders there and then transitioning to Colorado, jumping straight into ice climbing. But there was a transition where I, when I was living in Idaho, uh, and I think it was 2011, where I was working with the Forest Service as a hydrologist, and I got back into rock climbing pretty good. I, I found a, a pair that I squeezed my feet in. It was a pair of Scarpas, and it was painful. But City of Rocks was down in southern Idaho, and then 
going up to Sun Valley, Stanley and the Sawtooth. It was too many opportunities to pass. It was more rock than ice. And so I got back into rock climbing. City of Rocks is this world-class Southern Idaho. If you haven't been there, park your truck, stay out there for weeks and you won't climb the same route. It's just amazing. Leaving Idaho, moving back uh, east and then staying active, climbing uh, yearly in Ure uh, at the ice park. Lake City at the ice park they have there. And then getting into mountains, like I said, climbing Rainier, Hood, Baker, Washington, Adams, you know, a lot of those PNWs out there. Nothing too crazy. I'm training for Denali right now. I'm going to do that in 2020. That's a big one I've been looking forward to do. Uh, 2021, Appalachian Gear, we're going down there to do a documentary finishing with the big summit down there. Hopefully, Jason, you can join us. Kind of getting ready for Elbrus, knocking out these six summits. Yeah, climbing resumes only about you know 15 years old say it's uh pretty active still (laughs) so where are you in your six summits bid your six of seven summits bid oh man nine right now uh denali (laughs) will be my first uh i had a chance to go this year but uh appalachian gear company i'm working for now kind of asked me to push it off for another year so we can kind of do it more as a marketing standpoint and all that and i totally agreed uh it's looking like um denali Akongwa um, will be my first two and then move on from there. When you're talking, you mentioned like a lot of different places you've lived, kind of different career paths, different activities you've kind of pursued. And in a way, like you've led a pretty nomadic existence. Do you think that is a reflection of your personality and like you're naturally a person that needs new experiences or do you think that's just been because of circumstance? I think I'm a person that needs new experiences. I don't like to use the term bored because that's a really extreme term because I don't get bored with anything I do, but I just always look for a new challenge, a new experience, whether that's the next biggest mountain, the gnarliest next ice climb or the next craziest paddle from Island Island. I always look for a new experience and a new challenge. That's just how I've always been. As an athlete, I think that that roots from being an athlete, playing many different sports growing up and uh, always being a competitor. So I'm always naturally looking for that next experience, whether it be a new uh, path with studies, uh, geology. Uh, I've always thought about dabbling in something, going back to school and just kind of dabbling back in another biology career or just getting into another crazy sport, more canyoneering, cave diving, something like that. I was a big scuba diver and I've been itching to get back into the water. So I'm kind of dedicating 2020, other than climbing Denali, doing a lot of scuba diving and maybe kind of maybe doing some cave diving. Oh, cave diving. (laughs) Are you prepared for that one? Oh man, I think so. I got a good bit of scuba years underneath my belt. So I'm ready for that. I don't think my wife is, but uh, I don't think she'll uh, listen to this podcast. She, She like to steer clear of anything that announces me going into the unknown. (laughs) (laughs) So what are the things you eventually do? So you kind of start out as a scientist and you move into different sciences and then you start working with park services and things like that. And you're eventually going to end up in the outdoor industry. So what did that path look like? That transition from science careers to park services to now doing the things you do? A big change in our life was when uh, my wife, Megan, had an awesome opportunity to start her career. As a dietitian, we took a move to Atlanta Georgia and so I've kind of left my career with the Audubon Society and the Park Service down in Mississippi as a uh, botanist and educator and we kind of uprooted and moved to Atlanta and started uh, kind of our new life there and she was working as an active dietitian and randomly enough I I was working as a a biologist at this Blue Heron Nature Preserve and kind of part-time because work was hard to find in Atlanta. I saw this job for uh, an outdoor kindergarten teacher. I'm just picturing you, this enormous man and tiny children. <laughs> it's kind of like a uh, kindergarten cop. So I, s- I see this ad and I was like, what the hell? I didn't have to have, a, I guess, a accredited license right away because it was non-traditional school. So I applied for it. I needed a job and got the call back a few days later. And uh, This was Montessori school, right? Uh, Waldorf. Yes, yeah, very similar to Montessori, but more nature involved. Yeah, explain to people what it is. Rudolf Steiner is kind of like a, uh, it was basically a German-based uh, school kind of created after World War II, but it's a nature-immersed school anywhere from kindergarten up through high school that is not traditional school. You know, you can have these schools that subside in cities that may have a few acres to schools that subside in a country that has, you know, 13-acre campuses. And uh, from my experiences... 
I was an active kindergarten teacher there, and it was probably one of the best jobs of my life. I love teaching younger kids. As a day-to-day role is I got to school, we meet all the kids on the playground, and we start off with these opening songs as a whole school, and then we branch out, you know, the different grades go to different parts of the forest where there's classrooms cut out with wooden stumps and wooden tables and chalkboards you know, leaning against the trees. And that's where your classes are. There was a kind of a saying, there was no such thing as bad weather. It was just bad clothing. Obviously, you know, any lightning storms, any, you know, threatening weather, we were inside. Uh, we had a building. But other than that, we were always outside. Rain, snow. Every morning I built a fire for the school. And, uh, you know, my kindergarten class consisted of learning on the chalkboard uh, outside, taking care of goats, chickens, learning plants, just learning surroundings. Because the whole approach was not forcing stuff to these kids at a young age, making them take homework home at, you know, four or five years old. You know, letting a kid grow and develop as the kid should and letting it, you know, adapt to its surroundings and its environment. And, you know, these whether it be Montessori or Waldorf or Amelia Reggio was another uh, school. Stats and rates are just high of like kids of just being successful after they, you know, graduate and apart from these schools. It was such an amazing experience growing up in the public scene, you know, fighting for bus seats every day compared to, you know, these kids being immersed in nature and learning about birds, plants, everyday life. That's what really got me into the outdoor scene as a career, um, it, I was outside every day. And as a, bi- a biologist, I was outside a lot, but I was also in, you know, office. But as a, a kindergarten teacher at a Waldorf school, I was literally outside every day. Rain, snow, cold, high, and it really just opened up to my eyes. This is where I want to be. This needs to be my office outside every day. I taught there for almost two years on the side, managed uh, or assistant managed uh and Outfitters in Atlanta, High Country Outfitters. And that just kept me involved with outdoors gear and everything. And that transitioned to me moving to Asheville, becoming a, a head of production for Eno Hammocks, helping run their production crew, and then transitioning to my title right now. I think this is really interesting because I think the assumption would be like, yeah, you work as a biologist, you're outdoors a lot, you're getting a mountaineering, you get getting ice climbing and these other things, you're outdoors a lot. That's what really drives the love of outdoors but then ironically enough it's working as a kindergarten teacher that really solidifies it in your mind like I don't think if you sat down and did an equation of how does Lee become who he is that's that's the equation anybody comes up with well it was it's hard to explain but seeing those kids they experience the world from their eyes and their age it almost gave me the chance to experience it with them. So it makes total sense when you say it, yeah. but it's like never a thing you'd you'd guess ahead of time. And it was amazing. It kind of knocked me down a level. You know, here, here I was growing up, you know, playing college basketball, doing you know biologists, doing all these different careers, and the simplistic of this career being a you know outdoor teacher really opened my eyes. And you know, not only was it probably one of my favorite careers for about two or three years, it was the best birth control me and my wife had ever. <laughs> I do have to say that uh, it worked in many different ways. So, uh, <laughs> so what is the curriculum like at a school like that? Is it all your traditional, like your traditional curriculum, in addition to all this nature-oriented? Yeah, uh, pretty much. A lot of people think it's just. Lord of the flies. A lot of people think we're just out there running around making like bows and right. I assume there's some people that assume it's bullshit. And it's yeah, like, oh, oh just my people god, messing there's, around. It's 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 embarrassing. It's more than enough that think it's this BS where you know, like I said, it thinks this is a bunch of kindergartners from a cartoon running around barefooted throwing stones at each other. When realistically, it's your traditional school with a twist and so many different approaches. I I couldn't even nowhere to begin on this podcast but it's just it's not as forceful if that makes sense we had so many children come in from public schools inner city schools told that oh man they they don't belong there they have add they have riddle but whatever you know they come there and all it takes is a few days for them to transition into this softer approach and more i would say homey approach and these kids who were diagnosed with add and didn't belong in school, you know, transitioning to our schools and these type of schools beautifully. I mean, it, it's just amazing. Uh, and like I said, that's why I'll, I will always love that career, even though it was for two, two and a half years, can't pinpoint exactly. That career 
just there opened up my eyes to everything, not only what I'm doing, but how I'm going to go about raising our child when we have one. You yeah, know? I was going to ask you, do you want your kid to go to one of these kinds of schools? Oh, 100%. And some of it is a, pro- a lot of people are afraid of these schools because sometimes it may be a little bit pricey. But what they're not understanding is the price goes back into the education. It's all the uniqueness of the schools, not only outside, but the buildings. You know, you walk into these buildings, every toys are wooden. It's it's non-technology. And it, but when you get into these upper grades, they do incorporate technology. But it's just, it's just kind of a, a beautiful thing of how it comes together. And I want my family to be a part of that because the families, when I taught, were all a part of the school. Any, any school function, the drop-offs and the pick-offs were so conversational with the parents every day. I talked to everybody. It was hugs. It was thank you. Hey, how's everything going at home? How's everything going at school? And uh, it was very personal. And I encourage people to at least check that out. It may not be up your alley. It may not be what you're looking for. But I encourage you just to check it out, just to give it a read, because uh, it is very interesting. And it uh, it's becoming a popular approach, especially to the new age. I do wonder if some of these kinds of approaches could you know be incorporated into the public school system with the kind of or at least similar successes to they get here in these private schools they uh they are actually we've seen some actually in atlanta i've seen some firsthand in schools all around the um u.s and whether it be longer recesses you know i know that don't sound like that but you know exposing these kids to just being outside 10 minutes longer does a dramatic difference. It helps, you know, allow unwanted energy to get out and countless other uh, attributes. Yeah, public schools are starting to find this and take it in. Not every schools, but uh, some that can, uh, you know, afford to take in maybe extra activities in, whether it be hands-on building, you know, maybe, you know, doing gardening outside, uh, building rain gardens uh, and different stuff like that. We, we've seen a lot of different approaches. When I worked for the Audubon down in Mississippi, the Audubon Society, we went to a lot of different schools and put in like rain gardens and birdhouses and different stuff and got the kids more involved. And whether they knew it or not, it was kind of a, almost a similar approach, getting those kids outside. And whether it be after school hours or during school hours, it's a good thing to incorporate because if you have a lot of high energy kids, you will see a major difference, especially when you spend a lot more time outside. One thing I have thought about as I've gotten older and like look back to my own education, completely public school system, I do think that there's a bit of a mistake in that schools focus almost entirely just on academic pursuits and they leave out all of these things that have direct applications like you're talking about gardening and like a lot of times automotives or what was known as home ec and then became whatever it is called now and doesn't even exist in most schools a lot of those things have kind of been whittled out and it's strictly intellectual pursuits that we focus on when I really feel like a rounded approach makes for a much more fulfilling life, but then it also just makes for a much more rounded individual and a more useful person in society. Yeah, well, Bob Dylan once said, the times they are changing, and that's what it is. You know, it's, you know, whether you claim technology or, you know, whatever, stuff's changing from when you and I went to school uh, to now. A lot of, a lot of kids have active iPads in classrooms. So uh, it's more of a easier approach to focus on academics when we have technology that's, you know, very advanced. But I agree. I think a more well-around approach kind of makes a more well-around individual. The problem I see firsthand with kids who are just forced academics usually uh, lack in social skills. And I see that as a problem in this day and age is lack of communication and, you know, whether blame it on text or you know, social media, you know, you could say that I use that, but I, I still am part of a generation that loves to connect person to person, handshake. And, and that's something we taught in our kindergarten. You know, it's these kids don't have cell phones. The text that their classmates are talking face to face with their classmates and their teachers. And they're actually interacting with others, which is something you don't see as much today it's easy to become an introvert these days whether it be career or whatever uh you know you can lock yourself in your house and be a multi-billionaire and never come out your house and you know never socialize with anybody it's definitely changed but i agree with the well-rounded approach you know i think it's it just makes for a better individual which we're at a time now where we could use a lot of better individuals in this world more well-rounded people that can communicate you know with more people i think it also helps you kind of later look 
at the academic stuff and then find ways to apply it. Because what a lot of kids complain about is like math. I don't understand why I need to learn this. It has no practical applications. Whereas if it was incorporated in this other type of approach, maybe those mathematic applications seem more obvious. Yeah. Maybe you start to feel how things are connected so you don't just feel like I'm being forced to learn this I don't want to well I've always been a big fan of hands-on approach I learn quicker when I'm doing something hands-on compared to you know reading it from a slideshow or from a book and that's kind of like what you're talking about that's what these kids have whether it be the kindergartners feeding the animals and counting the hand feeds they're doing and actually interacting with math and themselves or it being the older kids putting on, uh, you know, different plays or putting on different shows or doing different projects in the woods. It, it comes hand to hand, if that makes sense. And I think that's what's lacking is, you know, like we said, the well-round approach, the hand to hand learning approach compared to, hey, you just read this off this tablet, take this test, you know, and then, you know, advance or you know, fail, you know, one of those. That's a big part that we're losing. And I I saw that in my kindergartners. They were involved in math, whether they knew it or not. You know, every time we fed the chickens or we fed the uh, donkeys or we uh, watered the plants, we always uh, counted out loud, you know, how many hand feeds we threw out or how many seconds we uh, poured the water. So in their mind, they're getting introduced to math naturally. They're not getting forced at a young age at five years old with a paper saying, hey, we got to figure this equation out and you got to take this home and it better be correct when you bring it in tomorrow. I mean, that puts a lot of stress on somebody. It puts stress on me when somebody gives me something overnight and says, hey, I need this tomorrow. So you said you spent about two, two and a half years doing this and, and you clearly enjoyed it. So what caused you to leave and move on into whatever the next pursuit in your life was? Unfortunately, uh, as most of forest kindergartners can attest if you're listening and it doesn't pay as high as we'd want it to. You know, if I could, you know, obviously get a higher pay scale, I'd be there. But that wasn't the only reason to. My, my wife and I was always wanting to set roots in the mountains. I've always wanted to move west. She wanted to stay close to family. Uh, she's she's from Tennessee. So we agreed on the Appalachian Mountains. So we've always wanted to set roots in Asheville just from visiting and from stories. And uh, so I had an opportunity arise with a company called Eno Hammocks. It was hard to part ways with the school. It was very emotional with relationships I built with the families and the teachers and uh, just the community involved in the school. It was very hard to leave. It was a big stepping stone for me and my family, and we took it, moved to Asheville. My wife took a a career uh, risk and uh, dropped everything and moved up here with me, and luckily she's on her feet as an active dietitian in Asheville. We um, wanted to move to Asheville, set roots in the mountains, and uh, we achieved our goal, and now we're here. Yeah, so you've become a big proponent of this area. I'd say you're a pretty big fan of the East Coast, of Asheville, of North Carolina in general. What is it that you love about this area so much? Because you've been to Idaho and Colorado. You've lived a number of places, traveled a fair amount. What is it that you love so much about this region? It just has a home feeling. It's very folky, if that makes sense. F-O-L-K, folk. (laughs) Just in case my accent don't throw these people off. It's very just like home cooking feeling here. You know, you're welcomed most places. People wave at you on the streets. No one's really too busy to stop and have a conversation, you know. It's a little bit more slower paced. I lived in New York City for a year when I was in school, and that was god-awful. And uh, (laughs) I'm glad I'm back down in the South. And uh, the Appalachian Mountains has a special place in my heart. Me and my wife did a lot of traveling in the foothills in northeast Alabama of the Appalachian Mountains. We've always just wanted to live in there, live in the mountains. And that's what it was. It's just the mountain feeling moonshine drinking, home cooking, you know, just kind of day here, man. <laughs> we know the outdoor industry is like pretty strong in, in the Pacific Northwest, in Colorado, in Utah. But as I understand it, it's also getting pretty strong here in this region. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? It's booming. Uh, and Asheville is a mecca for it. Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, Georgia, all of this is a mecca. Whether it's companies arising from nowhere or just athletes arising from the ashes and competing at, you know, Olympic levels. The East is now on the map, and it's been overshadowed a while. And I think that's because, you know, I'm not taking anything away from the Rockies and the North Cascades or anything like that. That's one of my playgrounds for sure. But 
A lot of people overlook the oldest mountains in the world, the Appalachian Mountains, and the recreational opportunities that are here, whether it be from the gorges, the rivers, the raft, the uh, world-class rock climbing, even ice climbing here in the winter, uh, Asheville and around get some good ice climbing, some frozen waterfalls, world-class hiking. You know, we have the Appalachian Trail. The heart of it runs through uh, North Carolina and the Smokies, Great Smoky National Park. We're on the map, and now uh, and a lot of companies are actually moving and starting up in the east now. It, it's a great market out here. It's uh, beautiful, and the economy is booming and wanting uh, these outdoor industries to start, be created, especially USA, you know, made. And uh, we see a lot of that here in the East. You see a lot more USA made companies, a little bit more cottage companies compared to maybe some bigger companies who reside, you know, maybe build headquarters somewhere in the mountains, you know, out West. So you move out here, you work with Eno for a bit, who you're not with anymore. Now you've moved on to someone else. So why don't you tell us a bit about where you are now and why you do what you do now. Currently with a company called Appalachian Gear Company, who is now a part of a new movement and new evolution of uh, products. We uh, make 100% alpaca performance products. We make anything from beanies, buffs, shirts, to uh, Editor's Choice award-winning hoodies that we just put out. I'm the VP of Marketing and Lead Athlete for Appalachian Gear, and John Gage, the owner, approached me a few years ago. He's been active with this company for about four years, but people's only really seen the company in the last two years as it's taken off pretty uh, dramatically. And it was just him and his business partner. And John Gage approached me one day with an opportunity to take one of his garments, kind of just become a quote unquote ambassador and send him some photos. He'll send me some gear. And I was all bored. And I was currently a icebreaker, kind of like a secondary rep for icebreaker, uh, where they would send me stuff just for exchange for photos. Icebreaker kind of promoted my wedding or kind of advertised my wedding. They uh, sent me all my groomsmen's like special kind of like uh, long sleeve and socks all kind of like badass sort of wedding and uh, John Gage knew this and he uh, threw this alpaca shirt and garments at me and told me to go have fun with them and uh, I was kind of biased at first because being a merino guy but I tell you what instantly I fell in love with the stuff I first took it on a trip to Mount Hood fell in love with the shirt came back to John Gage threw down my merino on the ground had the shirt on and said Let's make this thing happen. And I've been with him since, and I was his first full-time employee. Now I'm his uh, VP of marketing and lead athlete, and I go around doing my dream job. I mean, I'm traveling to Nepal for Appalachian Gear with Backpacker Magazine for some marketing opportunities. You know, I'm doing a lot of ice climbing for marketing, and uh, I meet a lot of great people and do a lot of interfacing with a lot of big names. And uh, I couldn't think of a better opportunity that that gentleman had presented to me. And, you know, I'm grateful to him for giving me this dream job, which I still am waiting to wake up one day and be like, damn, you know, I'm still on the road in a van doing festivals for a hammock company, you know. (laughs) So when people hear VP of marketing for your average business, that means you're buying ad space a lot of places, you're coming up with different sorts of campaigns to make people interested in your product. But for you... Being a VP of marketing works a little differently for this company. So what does that look like? John Gage's first orders when he hired me was, I will never be in an office. And that wasn't my words, that was his. <laughs> Till this day, I have yet to be in an office with Abgear almost two years down the line. I'm not trying to be conceited or rubbing in, but... You know, I, I do do a lot of travel for them. I go around doing a lot of interfacing where, you know, we're sponsors at Bozeman Ice Fest, so I'll be out there with my team climbing and kind of representing our gear. Same thing with Trail Days in Damascus, Virginia, and PCT Days in uh, Cascade Locks, Oregon. We were sponsors out there, so me and John went out there with a sales crew and hung out with a bunch of freaking hikers and camped out there with them every day and talked about some awesome products that we had. Changed a lot of people's mind and convert them to the alpaca alpaca life, or the herd as we call it. And so, yeah, man, uh, like I said, it's kind of a dream come true. I do a lot of traveling now traveling I guess that John and myself get to pick and um, we have a great marketing team Darby Communications John hired and that makes my life easy I just dump content to them and they make it look great I mean I hate to say it they uh, they, they do all the work so John and I try to have as much fun as the owner should and as the <coughs> VP of marketing should you know so yeah as I told you I'm heading to Nepal that's the next big trip for us and that's going to be three weeks of Nepal fun trekking and climbing and getting back just before Thanksgiving and this oddly enough kind of segues into how you and I met which it's late October now so you and I met pretty much two months ago yeah on the John Muir Trail in a sense 
you were there working and doing your job, but you also were on your honeymoon. So tell us a little bit <laughs> about how you ended up on the John Muir Trail and how this is sort of a part of your job. Yes, that was a great experience first off. It all started with uh, two, 2015, my wife and I climbed Mount Whitney and I proposed to her on top of Mount Whitney. And why did you choose Whitney as the place instead of anywhere else? Well, because I was trying to set the highest bar I could, literally. <laughs> I mean... If you want to top it, you got to go to Alaska, right? And I've always been, a, a, like I said, a mountaineer and a climber, and she's always wanted to dabble and stuff like that. So aside from doing a mountaineering route, I took her on the trekking route. I look back, I'd much rather climb Mount Wendy with her below me instead of taking that portal route. We uh, was only awarded a day permit, so we had to leave Mount Whitney portal and hit the summit and come down in a day, which a lot of people may be like, oh, that ain't bad. And some people it may not be. It was 23 miles up and down. You know, elevation gain was, I don't even freaking know. I mean. Was it 5,000, 7,000, Probably 6, total, yeah, total up and down 14. And then it was just a brutal hike, but I proposed to her at the top. It didn't even feel like a proposal. <laughs> what sparked our interest on the JMT is we saw a lot of people coming up from the other side of Trailcrest, summiting Mount Whitney. And, you know, we talked to them where they're coming from. They were saying they were hiking the trail. So immediately that sparked the interest. And she said that day, she said, I want to do that for my honeymoon. It sounded great at the time. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it was still a great trip. But man, I tell you what, uh, we set out on the honeymoon. Uh, let's see, we got married in 2018. We did the honeymoon in 2019 this year, two months ago. So we sat out on the JMT via the PCT Cottonwood Pass and uh, so set on on our quote unquote honeymoon journey in about Five days in, we stopped calling it the honeymoon because it was uh, some work, you know. A lot of yes, I had to recall. I had to keep reminding yeah. you that you were on your honeymoon. <laughs> you and multiple people. <laughs> you and uh, Zoe, our Australian friend, had to remind us multiple times. And when it was all said and done, it was it was great. It felt like a honeymoon, but it was funny because a lot of the times, whether we were taking a zero or camping with other people, uh, most of the time was like, oh, I'm going to go pinch my tent over there. You know, I don't want to be too close and show honeymoon. And my wife, quote unquote, be like, trust me, there ain't nothing going on in this tent. <laughs> we both stink. We both won't rest. Trust me, pinch your tent closer, you know. So, you know, it was a hard honeymoon. I wouldn't change it for the world, but I wouldn't recommend a honeymoon with your significant other unless you really love one another like we do, because it is a test. It is a test because the John Muir Trail is only 215 miles, and we did extra 20 with the PCT. But I tell you what, it was a it was a tough trail with the elevation gains, the passes, and uh, the solidarity. But I wouldn't change it in the world. And yeah, and that's how it brought us to meet you, man. We yeah. uh, was the third day, I think we were in it our was third day. Day four for me, day three for you, and we just happened to stumble upon each other. And, and the only shade, uh, I remember, it was one yep. tree in the shade, and it was I was there, you couple other people that we ended up hiking with the rest of the trail and we're all soaking up this one shade and ended up sticking together that rest of that day camped together and kind of bonded right then and there and yeah, for three days until i lost you guys when you went into town yeah we uh went into resupply and actually took a zero and was texting uh jason we actually uh, uh, for y'all viewers out uh, there we actually gave him a trail name uh <laughs> yeah you're the one who gave me this trail name grits uh g-r-i-t-z because when we first met him, he had a big bag of grits, and we was uh, informed that there was a bag of grits in each resupply, and this, he didn't have no butter or any way to kind of season them up. So. No way to make them palatable. So he had this big bag of grits, and he was always trying to get them away, and he was always successful. Uh, so he came up with the name Grits, and we added a true grits in front of it because of the awesome hat he wore, but uh, forever in our hearts, he will be grits. But we stuck with him. We got separated when we had to resupply. You pushed ahead. We thought we lost you for the rest of the trail you were always a day ahead of us we always heard until our next resupply which is vvr we thought we'd never see you i was wondering if they were going to make it there because it's a place where campers can camp for free and you can buy food at this place it's like a resort for campers and i'd been there for a day and a half and i was about to leave on the afternoon ferry to get out of there thought maybe they'd be coming through i write a note finish writing it hand the pen back to the person who lent it to me and i go to walk outside to pin it to the wall hoping they'll find it and as soon as i open that door <laughs> this big giant is standing in front of me and i just handed him the note <laughs> i said you're not pinning that note and i grabbed it i looked at it 
It was a note kind of reading that, hey, I'll catch you later and missed you. I folded <laughs> it up, put it in my pocket. I think you had about an hour before the, you caught the ferry to catch the trail, yeah, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So we, uh, I think we had dined over a bag of gummy bears <laughs> that, uh, that you got me hooked on via the trail. It was good to see you. It was almost uh, a relieving moment when my wife and I got to see you because uh, we were definitely searching for you. And then you split ways and we didn't see you until uh, I think we gave you a phone call when we got off the trail pretty much. Yeah, you didn't see me till I flew across the country to come hang out at your house for a weekend. Yeah, in location <laughs> right now, Asheville, North Carolina. But you were sincerely also working on yeah, your yeah. honeymoon. So, so, so tell us about what that job was. Yeah, so I just drove my Jeep out. Me and the owner, John Gage, we just left North Carolina and we drove out from North Carolina to Oregon to go attend uh, PCT Days. And we're out there um, as a sponsor with our booth kind of promoting and selling our stuff having a great time and my wife was planning to flying into portland to uh do the jmt so pct days in john gage headed back east uh, i picked up my wife at the airport and we drove down to start the john Muir trail i recommend doing a walk-up permit because that was the only way we could get our permit by the way and then yeah so we got on a trail with some new app gear products we, like you said we had the intention for our trip to be a honeymoon but it was also work if you call it that we considered calling him camp to camp as in camp to camp salesman because this man would sincerely meet a person and in a way that w- that was like positive without feeling like some greasy guy was trying to sell you something, he'd just start <laughs> telling you about how great this hoodie he wears is and about the company he worked for. And he always sounded so damn sincere when he would do it. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's this uh, natural salesman in me. And uh, yes, we had a couple new products. I was promoting a couple protocols, net gaiters, our um, sleeping bag liner, some of our hoodies. They were just testing and promoting. I had a bag full of beanies and buffs that I was giving away the first part of the trip. So I was out there, yeah, kind of testing and marketing our stuff, taking uh, live photos and videos from resupply times and shooting them back on our social media. So, yeah, so it was work and play. And I couldn't really tell the difference because both seemed like it was play. The honeymoon turned out great. The work turned out great. We, you know, we got what we needed done with uh the ratings the temperature ratings uh for our new sleeping bag liner that we're uh having in works our hoodies and uh promoting our new colors and and just getting the alpaca word out and changing these merino lovers to a new uh movement you had some of the app gear ambassadors were out on the trail as well or, or pct yeah as well, right so that's kind of part of what you do now right is you have these ambassadors on all these trails so when you go somewhere it's likely someone who's an ambassador for app gear is out there yeah correct so uh, i run the athlete and ambassador program and we're actually going to start calling our group just pretty much athletes because that's what they are and professionals whether it's our uh, professional photographers or professional athletes and i ran into a couple of our athletes on the john Muir trail ben vaughn hiking ginger that's his uh, instagram name i ran into him and he's one of our full-time athletes uh, and promoters for app gear and he would just finish the pct and was uh, finishing his section in the high sierras and just randomly ran into him and that's a great feeling i actively had athletes on the pct at cdt this year we had some uh athletes international on some trails the santiago trail my wife and i were on the john Muir trail and then we have athletes it's all over the world in the u.s is um, promoting us and doing great stuff whether it's from being athletes and competing or just being activists, you know, we're a very environmental friendly company being, you know, our stuff is 100% biodegradable since it's 100% alpaca. And so we have a lot of people that just push, you know, environmental just education for us. And one of those guys is Steven Reinhold, who's the creator of Hashtag Trash Tag. And he's one of our professionals. And uh, not only is he an athlete, he's a professional photographer that works with us. And He's a big promoter of our outdoor sector of our company and, and how clean we're you know wanting to be and how just movement of trash tag and picking stuff up and involving it with social media and how big of a movement this is and everything. Yeah, so how do you select who becomes one of your athletes? How do you decide? Do they approach you? Do you approach them? Is it a mix? Is there no no mathematic equation on how it happens? It's just circumstance? Well, there's a mathematical equation, and John swears he, he's the only one that knows it. <laughs> no, but uh, 
it's kind of a mix, but it comes down to there's no application. We uh we backed away. We never wa- had an official like full fledged ambassador program. We do have a few quote unquote ambassadors out there, but we got away from the traditional ambassador program because there's a lot of companies out there that quote abuse their ambassadors, and that's you know that's not what we're about. If somebody wants, you know, first of all, has to be a true believer in our product. I'm not going to go headhunt people and, hey, come come do this for us. If somebody that usually approaches me that's a true believer in the product and wants to know more, they come from all different directions, like, you know, whether it be athletes or activists, and they just want to know more about the alpaca and kind of what we're doing. And that's the kind of people we look for, the in-depth people that just don't hit me up and say, hey, Send me a couple of your products. I'll take pictures, you know, and that's to me, that's watered down. I used to be ambassadors for a lot of companies. I won't mention their names, but the approach where you have a, an athlete or a uh, ambassador and you send them gear for free and exchange of stuff, that's all great. But I never expect anything out of my athletes. And we don't never do anything where, hey, we'll give you a 40% discount, buy our stuff. And then once you buy a certain amount of stuff, then we'll hook you up with codes for your families. That's when it becomes abusive. So our program is all about finding true people. And whether that's me seeking these people out who I've sat down with or read about and, and finding out more in depth or these people approaching me and then me finding more about them. That's the kind of approach. There's no application online to become part of the athletes. Um, it's very secluded, and it's and it's something John and I take proud in. We take care of our athletes. We fund our athletes for events or stuff they do. We, um, you know, we don't trick them into gear for their family. You know, we always take care of them. If they ever need a new piece of gear, we're always there for them. We treat our athletes like an employee because they are employees and that's why we don't use i guess we're getting away from the term ambassador we want these athletes and professionals part of our company and that's what they are you know whether it's giving them something gear giving them a ride from the trail into town feeding them when they're in between trails you know that's what we're kind of about yeah so why don't you tell us a little bit why you believe in the company and what you want to see happen with the company well i believe in the company because it is a new movement it is a new innovation in outdoor products it's nobody else makes this in the world they can't you know if you buy something that's 100 percent alpaca look at the tag i'm sure that there's a lot of blend with a lot of different stuff in there and so we're a trendsetter and i like being a trendsetter and that's why I'm happily involved with this company because we're starting a new trend that's just taking off and it's already ticking off people, you know. Companies like the North Face and Icebreaker already know who we are and know what we're doing and it ticks people off that some guy, John Gage from North Carolina, can come up with such an effective, productive product that's gonna take over the outdoor world. And from the get-go, I always wanted to be a part of that and that's why I'm tried and true Appalachian gear. So what makes 100% alpaca important to you? Why that instead of a blend? Well, I've always been a natural fiber kind of guy over a polyester or synthetic blend, just for the performance. Growing up with merino and shirts uh, that's recycled out of like bamboo fiber, you know, natural fibers always perform better, you know, breathability, UV protection and stuff like that. And being 100% alpaca, ours has all those attributes plus more, you know, UV protection, biodegradable, uh, antimicrobial. And it's been put through the ringer multiple times through scenarios that half of the people can't even fathom. You know, one of our athletes, Sean Camp, just uh, hiked a CDT at, you know, 2,000 miles just in his AppGear hoodie without washing it and sent it back to us. And man, Jason, I could have just put it on a rack and sold it to anybody because it don't stink and don't never hold in funk. And it's just an overall diverse performance piece. Is that what I'm wearing right now? Did you just, did you right just hand me his old one? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, yeah. Now you're wearing our nice uh, limited edition uh, olive color, too. Oh, man, I feel special. Yeah, so uh, and that's, uh, as I mentioned before, that's our Editor's Choice award-winning uh, hoodie, uh, 2019 Backpackers Award. We plan on putting out a couple more Editor's Choice Awards here in 2020 and 2021 that... Uh, John Gage and I are designing right now and and that's why I want to be with the company is because you know this guy came to me and gave me a window opportunity saying hey I need you to get not only awesome content but help me design products you know help me interface with people and stuff like that oops sorry there was a bug on my head I hit the mic 
But yeah, so that's why, again, I'm tried and true Appalachian gear, and that's why I'm going to be a part of this movement. And even if we flop and fell on our face tomorrow as a company, it was freaking a hell of a ride, and it's fun, you know? There's one thing I've learned about you is that you're pretty nomadic. You bounce around different places. You like to have new experiences. You like to try new things. But you love North Carolina. You like your new job. And I've even heard you talk about setting up roots here, building a cabin. So so what does that mean? Are you, are you hanging up the nomad life? You think you're going to set roots here? Well, we are going to set roots. We've always wanted a homestead in the mountains, uh, wife and I's dream, cabin in particular. And we have that set up. We're looking for some property active right now. But I'm also about to purchase a, a new Mercedes Sprinter van in 2020. So I will continue the life of travel. You know, my wife and I plan on having a kid and we're firm believers that when we're not here that we can fully raise the kid on the road as a teacher, you know, as, you know, I have the capabilities and confidence and I wouldn't be able to do it without the support of her because most people here, when they get married, oh, that was the end of them. Not me. That's just the beginning. It's been great. I have the best supporter of the world and she supports all my trips and uh, she really kind of has the same vibe I do and she wants the cabin and she wants to continue to travel and she wants our kid to grow up traveling, kind of live the life like we do. So no matter life not as much but just add a couple people to the addition but it kind of sounds like you're going to set up a home base so that you've got somewhere to go back to but then you still you still get to have the best part of the nomad life but then you also can hopefully have the best part of, of planting roots somewhere and there's no place like home man i mean i can't put a price or see any other scenario that's better than me sitting in front of a fire uh, with my family and kind of the winter setting in the mountains. So we, I want a home base because it's kind of security for me. I always have a place to go home, you know. I always have somewhere that it's mine. I don't have to park a van next to. I don't have to put a tent up next to. I don't have to worry about being 100 miles away from the next person. You know, I've always been a big fan of creating a home, and uh, that's what I want to do. And, I, you know, I want our kid to be raised with a home mindset and have the nomadic mindset. You know, I, I want him to be able to do jobs like I did, you know, work for the Forest Service, hike hundreds of miles weekly and for a job and stuff like that. So uh, home is where the heart is. So if people have been listening and they're curious about your life and keeping up with what you're doing, where can they find you? And then also, where can they keep up with the uh, App Gear Company? Well, um, you can find me and also keep up with App Gear at uh, AppalachianGearCompany.com. That's our website. I have a lot of live streams and live videos that'll go in there for my travels. But also, you can keep me keep up with me on Instagram, uh, Natty underscore the underscore adventure, Natty the adventure. Do a lot of posting. Uh, of our, my personal travels with my wife and I and just personal endeavors with friends and family. But yeah, and I have a website as well, nattyadventure.com. It's active, it's going. I put a lot of, you know, vlogs up there. So um, any of those three, choose your, choose your poison. All right, and now's your big moment. This is the part of the episode where I ask you, what is the final thought you want to leave the public with? So wow us with your, with your deep insight. Come on. I'm thankful for what I'm doing, man. Uh, being involved with the outdoor community, trying to make a name for myself and just the people I'm working with, the supporter I have on my side, which is my wife. It's awesome. It took a lot of hard work to get here, a lot of different career changes, you know, a lot of ups and downs financially. I think I can say that I'm happy with my career, and uh, and that's something I've never been able to fully, fully say. You know, I've loved careers, but I've never been completely happy. Once we set roots, everything's just going to kind of complete the puzzle there. If you uh, think you can't get outside, but want to go outside, get outside because it's amazing out here. It changes your life, every breath, whether you're climbing, hiking, walking, throwing a frisbee, anything. Get outside and come uh, get the right gear at Appalachian Gear Company. And uh, before I leave, I just wanted to say that uh, Sean Camp uh, kneeled down to me in uh, GoldenEye 64 as I reign champion at uh, GoldenEye Nintendo 64. Any listeners out there, come and see me. We can play anytime. (laughs) All right. Thanks for sitting down with me, having this conversation, and then using it to diss on your friend about an antiquated video game that's like over 20 years old. He missed his opportunity. (laughs) He missed it. I had my shot, and I remembered it. (laughs) All right, man. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah, appreciate it. And Lee has returned from that trip to Nepal and here to tell us all about it in Lee's own words is Erica. Nepal was epic. 
I was fortunate enough to explore a lot of the country, but obviously the Himalayas was the highlight for me. Gaining such high elevation in the jagged regions of the Himalayas was a dream come true. I was able to scout out some 7 and 8,000 meter peaks for future endeavors. Natty in Nepal was a theme and I will return. And if you happen to run into a tall, dreadlocked guy at the Bozeman Ice Fest just a few days ago who couldn't stop talking about alpaca clothing, then you probably ran into Lee Trebitich himself. And for the rest of you, do not worry. You will have future opportunities to meet Lee. He will be at the OR show in Colorado later this year. You may recall that earlier in the show, he mentioned he and his wife are hoping to have a child in the future. Well, that future is sooner than you may have expected because they recently announced that Megan is pregnant with their child. So next year, Natty will be a daddy. Lee also mentioned several other people during the show, including Steve Reinhold, John Gage, and Sean Camp, and they will all be future guests this season. They will be the remaining three episodes that take place in North Carolina, so you can look forward to hearing from them later in 2020. And now it's that time of the show. Time to run to our website, gogetoutside.com. Look for this episode 91, Lee Trebitich. And there you will find photographs of Lee in action and links to everything we talked about on today's show. And if you would like to get in touch with us to talk about this episode, past episodes, future episodes, you can do that a number of ways. Send us an email, go at butcherbirdstudios.com or leave us a voicemail or send us a text at 818-925-0106. And please help keep this show going by going to your podcast purveyor of choice. Make sure you're subscribed and if possible, rate and review the show. And no matter where you are, you can always share it with someone who you think will enjoy it. This episode of the Go Get Outside podcast was produced, recorded and edited by me, your host, Jason Milligan. Additional help came from Griffin Davis. And as always, it has been brought to you by Butcher Bird Studios. Next time on the show. Come back January 1st and start your new year right with a roundtable discussion about embracing your discomfort zone. Brought to you by Team Chickaboom, that is Cindy Wyatt, Marilee Valkaz, and Severia Tilden. So please start your new year with us. See you then. <laughs>